This is Chapter 7, Book 2 of A Journey in Other Worlds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. A Journey in Other Worlds, Book 2, Chapter 7 An Unseen Hunter. They calculated that they had come ten or twelve miles from the place at which they built the raft while the damp salt breeze blowing from the south showed them they were near the ocean. Concluding that large bodies of water must be very much alike on all planets, they decided to make for a range of hills due north and a few miles off, and to complete the circuit of the square in returning to the Callisto. The soft wet sand was covered with huge and curious tracks, doubtless made by creatures that had come to the stream during the night to drink, and they noticed with satisfaction as they set out that the fresher ones led off in the direction in which they were going. For practice they blew off the heads of the boa constrictors as they hung from the trees, and of the other huge snakes that moved along the ground with explosive bullets in every thicket through which they passed knowing that the game, never having been shot at, would not take fright at the noise. Sometimes they came upon great masses of snakes, intertwined and coiled like worms. In these cases Cortland brought his gun into play, raking them with duck-shot to his heart's content. As the function of these reptiles, he explained, is to form a soil on which higher life may grow, we may as well help along their metamorphosis by artificial means. They were impressed by the tremendous cannon-like reports of their firearms, which they perceived at once resulted from the great density of the Jovian atmosphere. And this was also a considerable aid to them in making muscular exertion, for it had just the reverse effect of rarefied mountain air and they seldom had to expand their lungs fully in order to breathe. The ground continued to be marked with very large footprints. Often the impressions were those of a biped like some huge bird, except that occasionally the creature had put down one or both forefeet, and a thick tail had evidently dragged nearly all the time it walked erect. Presently, coming to something they had taken for a large flat rock, they were surprised to see it move. It was about twelve feet wide by eighteen feet long, while its shell seemed at least a foot thick, and it was, of course, the largest turtle they had ever seen. Twenty-four people could dine at a table of this size with ease, said Bearwarden, while it would make soup for a regiment. I wonder if it belongs to the snapping or diamond-backed species. At this juncture the monster again moved. As it is heading in our direction, resumed Bearwarden, I vote we strike for a free pass, and taking a run he sprang with his spiked boots upon the turtle shell and clambered upon the flat top which was about six feet from the ground. He was quickly followed by Errol, who was not much ahead of Cortland, for, notwithstanding his fifty years, the professor 
was very spry. The tortoise was almost the exact counterpart of the glyptodon asper that formerly existed on earth, and shambled along at a jerky gait about half as fast again as they could walk, and while it continued to go in their direction they were greatly pleased. They soon found that by dropping the butts of their rifles sharply and simultaneously on either side, just back of the head, they could direct their course by making their steed swerve away from the stamping. "'It is strange,' said Errol, "'that, with the exception of the mastodon and this tortoise, we have seen none of the monsters that seem to appear at the close of the Carboniferous periods, although the ground is covered with their tracks. Probably we did not reach the grounds at the right time of day, replied Bearwarden. The large game doubtless stays in the woods and jungles till night. I fancy, said Cortland, we shall find representatives of all the species that once lived upon the earth. In the case of the singing flowers, and the jack-o'-lantern jellyfish, we have, in addition, seen developments the existence of which no scientist has ever before even suspected. Occasionally the tortoise stopped, whereupon they poked it from behind with their knives. It was a vicious-looking brute, and had a huge horny beak, with which it bit off young trees that stood in its way as though they had been blades of grass. They were passing through a valley about half a mile wide, bordered on each side by woods, when Bearwarden suddenly exclaimed, Here we have it! And looking forward, they unexpectedly saw a head rise and remain poised about fifteen feet from the ground. It was a dinosaur, and belonged to the scaled or armored species. In a few moments another head appeared, and towered several feet above the first. The head was obviously reptilian, but had a beak similar to that of their tortoise. The hind legs were developed like those of a kangaroo, while the small rudimentary forepaws, which could be used as hands, or for going quadruped fashion, now hung down. The strong, thick tail was evidently of great use to them when standing erect, by forming a sort of tripod. "'How I wish we could take a pair of those creatures with us when we return to the earth,' said Cortland. "'They would be trump cards,' replied Bearwarden, in a zoological garden or a dime museum, and would take the wind out of the sails of all the other freaks. As they lay flat on the turtle's back, the monsters gazed at them unconcernedly, munching the palm-tree fruit so loudly that they could be heard a long distance. "'Having nothing to fear from a tortoise,' resumed Cortland, "'they may allow us to stalk them. We are, in their eyes, like hippocentaurs, except that we are part of a tortoise instead of part of a horse, or else they take us for a parasite.' or fibrous growth on the shell. They would not have much to fear from us, as we really are, replied Bearwarden, were it not for our explosive bullets. I am surprised, 
said Ayrault, that graminivorous animals should be so heavily armed as these, since there can be no great struggle in obtaining their food. From the looks of their jaws, replied Cortland, I should say they are omnivorous, and would doubtless prefer meat to what they are eating now. Something seems to have gone wrong with the animal creation hereabouts today. Their war-horse clanked along like a badly rusted machine, approaching the dinosaurs obliquely. When only about fifty yards intervened, as the hunters were preparing to aim, their attention was diverted by a tremendous commotion in the woods on their left and somewhat ahead. With the crunching of dead branches and swaying of the trees, a drove of monsters made a hasty exit and sped across the open valley. Some showed only the tops of their backs above the long grass, while others shambled and leaped with their heads nearly thirty feet above the ground. The dinosaurs instantly dropped on all fours and joined in the flight, though at about half-minute intervals they rose on their hind legs and for a few seconds ran erect. The drove passed about half a mile before the travelers, and made straight for the woods opposite, but hardly had the monsters been out of sight two minutes when they reappeared, even more precipitatedly than before, and fled up the valley in the same direction as the tortoise. The animals here, said Bearwarden, behave as though they were going to catch a train. Only our friend beneath us seems superior to haste. I would give a good deal to know, said Cortland, what is pursuing those giants, and whether it is identical or similar to the mutilator of the mastodon. Nothing but abject terror could make them run like that. I have a well-formed idea, said Bearwarden, that a hunt is going on, with no doubt two parties, one in the woods on either side, and that the hunters may be on a scale commensurate with that of their victims. If the excitement is caused by men, replied Cortland, our exploration may turn out to be a far more difficult undertaking than we anticipated. But why, if there are men in those woods, do they not show themselves? For they could certainly keep pace with the game more easily in the open than among the trees. Because, replied Bearwarden, the men in the woods are doubtless the beaters, whose duty it is to drive the game into and up the valley, at the end of which the killing will be done. We may have a chance to see it said Errol, or to take a hand, for we are travelling straight in that direction, and shall be able to give a good account ourselves if our rights are challenged. Why, asked Cortland, if the hunting parties that had been in our vicinity were only beaters, should they have mutilated the mastodon in such a way that it could not walk? And how were they able to take themselves off so quickly? for man, in his natural state, has never been a fast mover. I repeat, it will upset my theories if we find men. It was obvious to them 
that tortoises were not much troubled by the apparently general foe, for the specimen in which they were just then interested continued his course entirely unconcerned. Soon, however, he seemed to feel fatigued, for he drew his feet and head within his shell, which he tightly closed, and after that no poking or prodding had the desired effect. "'I suspect we must depend on Shank's mares for a time,' said Bearwarden cheerfully as they scrambled down. "'We can see now,' said Cortland, "'why our friend was so unconcerned, since he has but to draw himself within himself to become invulnerable to anything short of a stroke of lightning, for no bird could have power enough to raise and drop him from a great height upon rocks, as the eagles do on earth. "'I suspect, if anxious for turtle soup,' said Bearwarden, "'we must attach a lightning rod and wait for a thunderstorm to electrocute him.'" This is the end of Chapter 7 in Book 2 of A Journey in Other Worlds. Recording by Tom Weiss.